This is InX, a show about inclusive design. I'm your host, Matt May. In this episode... We're not going to complete it. We're not going to complete the work. Like, there is no work to complete, in my opinion. It's ongoing development. I think that to say that we're going to make an inclusive world in 100 years is a little bit pompous. A conversation with Joshua Halstead. First off, a brief apology. I had every technical difficulty in the world on the day this was recorded. I couldn't get my podcasting mic working, so you'll hear me coming through my webcam. Sorry about that. The good news is that Joshua's sound was fine, and he's the one you're here for anyway. Here's the interview. And it is my pleasure this time to introduce you all to Joshua Halstead. Thank you for joining us. Joshua is a scholar working at the intersection of critical theory, design studies, and critical access studies. A recognized contributor to disability design discourse, his primary project is that of conjoining aesthetics and access to provoke questions about the conditions and possibilities of participation. Halstead has been an invited lecturer in academic and professional settings from Stanford to Google and is co-author of Extra Bold, a feminist, inclusive, anti-racist, non-binary field guide for graphic designers. He's an assistant professor at Art Center College of Design and adjunct faculty at California College of the Arts. Thank you for doing this interview with me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. And before we get started, I also wanted to do the land acknowledgement. OCAD University acknowledges the ancestral and traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the Huron-Wendat. Joshua and I are presently on the ancestral and traditional territories of the Duwamish and Coast Salish peoples and the unceded lands of the Remetush and Ohuwonee people, who are the original owners and custodians of the land on which we stand and create. To get started, I usually just ask everybody to tell us where you come from? How, what was your design journey? And I actually have autobiographical data to back that up from from the book, but I wanted to, to give you the chance just to, to talk about it from your perspective. Awesome. Yeah, I was born and raised and went to all the way through my undergraduate education in Southern California. And I... Growing up, I always found some interesting context as I grew up in a very kind of physically and sports oriented family. My dad uh, was a marathon runner. My, my brother was, I'm the eldest of three. My brother went through baseball his whole, you know, adolescent life. He plays semi-professional baseball. My sister likewise did softball her entire adolescent life and and was part of the kind of U.S. Olympic softball team. And my mom and dad own a gym. Having a disability in that context, I think was, I don't think I know it was very interesting. And at the same time, both my parents really invited me to explore creativity. So from an early age, I found refuge in creating. I would paint, I would draw, I would go up. We lived at the base of mountains and I'd take solo hikes and and, read creative writing. So I had this kind of home and, and refuge in creative expression and getting out of the context a little bit. There's maybe a little bit of escapism there. But nonetheless, I, I developed a love and personal reflexive practice and forged an identity in the arts. And from kind of an immediate start in drawing and painting, I found graphic design in high school when I was 
participating in this Led Zeppelin cover band and we needed a cover for our fictitious album. And the name of our, our band was Midnight Sun. Actually, as I'm thinking about it, this is actually junior high. That got me into Photoshop, which you would be very familiar with, and then got me into Illustrator, which led to InDesign. So at the end of high school, I had repackaged this artistic sensibility and drive into graphic design as a discipline, applied and got into Art Center. And we could talk a little bit more if we want about that experience, but to summarize, graduated and began a career in San Francisco, moved and moved from Southern California to San Francisco and began my career at Landor Associates where I did branding and marketing a number of years. And this is all also when I started to, at the tail end of my career at Landor, dive into the topic of disability because at that point <clears throat> I hadn't politicized it for myself and I hadn't really imagined its potential as a creative lens uh, up until I was asked to give a presentation about it, inclusive design specifically. Yeah, my roots are in like pen and ink stippling in uh, abstract painting that led to a punk rock sensibility all the way through Art Center and from deconstructing and tearing apart the Swiss typography canon that I was given. And somehow they accepted me at Landor and then I started to deconstruct that canon also through the lens of disability. So trying to stitch some continuity in the story for you. Yeah, that touch point of recognizing one's disability as a creative tool or a different perspective, I think is something that comes to people or doesn't. It can happen anywhere over their career. I had known about my disability back through at least high school. And my embracing it as an identity happened even well after I got into accessibility. That idea that maybe there was something about this that was a tool that could help other people came later. Just reading through your parts of the book, Extra Bold, I think there were a few touch points for you as well. I don't know if you want to talk about the, the cuff, for, for example, but just little pieces of how the disability and the, art, the artistry came about really just the the interplay between the the artifacts that you use to be creative and finding a way for you to express yourself using what was there because i think that's usually the point at which you start having a dialectic like a conversation with the with the tools that you have and how they work for you yeah yeah that's great so it's such a good question. I appreciate that you brought in this, the, the concept of dialectic because I do feel that in my early career, there was this reflexive relationship between the material limitations and conditions of my creativity. So whether it be a pen or a paintbrush or duct tape to fasten these things on my hand or even like writing on a piece of paper and having the paper curl as I was trying to write on the top of it and that either being acceptable or unacceptable to my grade school teachers. My engagement as a maker revealed in many ways my body to me over time. The objects themselves had this kind of dialectic affect to where I could understand not just my physical body, but my social body and my hermeneutic body, like how I existed in kind of terms of meaning or how I existed in society and how I existed 
physically. Limitations, opportunities, all that stuff. So the cuff is this, just to describe it early on, and I've talked about this in uh, a talk and I write about it in the book because my hands are composed in such a way that they, they, they don't grab. My engagement with just mark making tools, so pen, crayon, marker, all of that in my early life um, was fairly non-existent until my family and spearheaded by my mom found a way to fasten these things on my hand. And early on, I, I remember that the pen not being designed for my hand posing this original question. <laughs> it's like, what's going on here? What does it mean that all of the, the things available um, to me to express myself aren't available. So I remember that kind of being this original huh, what's happening here in the material world. And then also my mom, with the help of my dad and me transgressing that, right? So making an adaptation and doing design. That was like my first design project. It was doing this thing and it ended up being a wetsuit material that was sewn in such a way that it looped around my left hand and was able to act as a fixture to put a pen or a paintbrush or a marker underneath it fastened my hand. This is after the first design iteration of duct tape, uh, which didn't work very well. It really worked, but then it left me in pain, Matt. Um, <laughs> yeah, not great. <laughs> I think that the cuff showed me the politics of creativity. It also showed me the politics of materiality, who can or can't participate in creative making and you know, production. What I think was interesting about that also was the cuff showed me, and this is before 10, that the conditions of the world could be transformed, mm -hmm. which again, like if I'm searching for an origin point of what radicalized me, it's really making a cuff. Well, markers, even though they might be the, the most ready-made, conventionally mainstream mark-making device and they don't work for me, that doesn't have to be the world. I can intervene in the world via design to participate in the world. That was a really interesting thing. What was interesting also though is that there was this interaction between the pen and the cuff that produced different marks. So I remember early on in my art career being really frustrated because I couldn't, with the hard and fast fastened pen, I couldn't make the different line qualities, you know, thin and thick and angled, et cetera, this kind of calligraphic line that I really wanted to make. I really looked you know, up to typographers and you know, folks who were really doing, folks like Doyle Young. And I remember there was a point uh, at the end of my art career, which I think this, we could take this thread anywhere we want, because the question is about my relationship with the tools. There was a teacher that allowed me, it was a 3D, three-dimensional shop class. I went to art, you know, again, I went to art center and this is a traditional Bauhaus uh, art and design education where we have a shop. This is, you know, uh, uh, something that we see in most uh, uh, schools and kind of the ACAD union here in the States at least. But that, of course, building things like a box or sculpture that was not as accessible to me. And he actually proposed that I create a series of paintings that would capture the quality of the mark that only I could make. So I started to use my toes uh, to make marks with charcoal. I started to use paint, thinking about how I can make 
marks with my elbow. Again, if I'm thinking back, that moment was really big for me because it showed me again, and it's not this kind of glossy, there's all the opportunity of disability, quote unquote, but it was the specificity of disability through the mark. It showed me that my body didn't necessarily have to make the calligraphic um, marks that formed my art center education. They could make these really grotesque, bold, in some ways, violent marks, intentional marks, um, non-conventional marks that argued with those marks. And as an aesthetic system, that could be something that for me at that point could feel uniquely mine. So I'm going back to this dialectic where my body was a problem for me or something to be overcome through most of my art career until something like the creative brief and this kind of unruly mark-making assignment in this class allowed my body to be a catalyst for difference in a positive way. (laughs) And that mark made my body okay to me and interesting to me at that point. It reopened the question of what is the problem, right? I then started to think about how, because I used the mouse in my computer with my toes. I performed graphics with my toes in my mouth rather than hands. From that point, I really felt like my, my means of making entered this really interesting dialectic where my, my body is revealed by the making and the making is revealed by my body. And that relationship was producing very different things than my peers. And why I labor a little bit to talk about this is because that politic informs how I think about access. Yeah, I think that's a good jumping off point to the, the concept of both body-mind and the idea of embodied learning, right? I think the perception, especially if you didn't have any disabilities to, to contemplate that impeded your access to either traditional art supplies or technology, the software for it, that you just thought that it was a skill building exercise where you gathered all the same things that everybody else had and then you were done, right? Then you were a designer. And here you are basically, you're almost a materials designer before you're a graphic designer because you have this starting point where you need to meet the materials where they're at. And then this new evolution where you're making the materials do what your body wants it to do instead of what matches the design that's on the screen. Totally. Yeah. Can you talk about embodied learning? I know there's an exercise in the book for for this, but just the idea of thinking of your body as one of the tools that, that you're using, just even for me, I was like, wait, what? Oh, yeah, that is definitely a thing. Yeah. Why I talked about embodied learning in the book and wrote a subsequent article on AIGA's design educator community titled Making Space for Disabled Body Minds in Design Pedagogy. And I co-authored that with Emmeline Brule. I think it's important because it situates the question of disability within the body. And it is stubborn in not allowing the concept of disability. If we really integrate the the body-mind in design, disability cannot be an abstract concept that can be defined by anyone else, be it a, you know, a medical establishment or a design house. If we're bringing in the body of designers into the design process, then they have to unpick the abstractions and the concepts with their own body and 
my hope is that they can draw and redraw their own lines or just get rid of the lines between non-disabled or disabled. Um, in some way, that's not to kind of invisibilize or kind of universalize the experience of disability, but it was specifically to open up the question more broadly because otherwise we have this abstract thing over here called disability and this is how we designed for it. But the whole kind of disability politic that at the point of writing it that I was really steeped in was this idea of like noticing bodies. But if my design critique or design direction was all about here, look at these concepts or these guidelines or these ideas, it didn't, there was a negative discontinuity in the, the politics that I was pushing, quote unquote, and the methodologies that I was pushing. So the idea um, is simply that our bodies are always a medium through which we design. And those bodies don't have universally positive or negative experiences in the world. But if we invite the, the body into just our experience of the world, Right. If we're going to invite this idea of phenomenology into design canon, then it can really open up the experiences of friction and tension and ease for all of the designers that can then be not new canon, but an additional canon to rubrics like universal design. So one of the, the primary reasons, there are the two primary reasons, right? Number one is that it opens up the question of the body for designers to really grapple with the experiences of ease and friction, which I think is paramount to discussions on disability. The second, though, because that can move us away from disability and in some kind of way universalize and say, quote unquote, everyone is disabled in some way. And that's not something that I wanted to do. The second reason why body-mind is important is because uh, disabled people experience ableism. Right, not just barriers, but discourses framing our lives as lesser. And this is what we write in this IGA article. When designers describe usability tweaks as enabling well-being or positive self-image, they're actually making this assertion between body and mind. And what I wanted to do and why I thought it's important to have this discussion of mind is because I don't want us to make these logical leaps from ramps to well-being or from screen reader accessible websites to excellent and thriving digital experiences. I wanted to open up not just the physical, but the psychological um, and the social aspects of design that are already embedded in it, but seem to have been left out of the discussion around disability. I think that's actually a good segue for us to get into the second segment where we start talking about all of the framing around inclusive design and, and universal design. So we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back with Joshua Halstead. InX is a major research project by me, Matt May, as part of the Master of Design degree program at OCAD University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Episodes and transcripts of this podcast can be found at inx.show. That's I-N-E-X dot show. Follow InX on Twitter at I-N-E-X podcast. And we're back with Joshua Halstead. And from the last segment, I think it's a good time for us to start talking about inclusive design. And I want to talk about how you see it in the world, how it's practiced. And we'll get to the, the juxtaposition between that and universal design. But really, I want to see how it's perceived and practiced and what your critique is of it. Great. So, yeah. 
It's a, this is the question, right? What's what do we think about this thing called inclusive design? On the positive, I think it's an important development in the history of design. I think it has connections to political organizing, to activism in general, to a broader social sensibility. It's not exclusive to design. I think it's kind of part of a broader, I'll say the word awakening, that in general, we are asking questions like and and putting these questions on the decision-making table of who's being left out. So in terms of its origins, at least the thread that I find most generative is thinking about it in relation to the larger movement toward participatory design and its offshoot of co-design and seeing that specifically situated in labor politics and making sure that workers in, in Europe where it began and really took hold had control over their working conditions or had at least some participation in their working conditions specifically in relation to the design of the technologies that they used on a daily basis. And a participatory action research which came out of that has a commitment to not just designing uh, things co-constitutively, but also making sure that the things that we make actually make a difference to the folks who have been traditionally marginalized. And I see resonances of this historical discourse and contemporary discourse in the discourse of inclusive design. So it's its root system that gives me some hope. Now, just like everything is like the game of telephone. You say one thing and maybe a hundred people down that line, it completely changes. This is something that I've talked about with, I think all of my guests, there's a defining term and I'll read what the uh, Inclusive Design Research Center's definition of this is. And then there's the colloquial standard, which is inclusive design is anything that I can think of that's inclusive and design. It doesn't have any of the methodological constraints to it. It's just the kind of thing that you would see in a BuzzFeed, for example. So I'm going to read the definition from the IDRC just as the, the starting point for this. And I want to just tease out how well you think this is established in people's minds. Inclusive design is design that is inclusive of the full range of human diversity with respect to ability, language, culture, gender, age, and other forms of human difference. What are your opinions of that? And how do you see that compared to what you as touted as inclusive design? Yeah, I see both. And maybe I take a little bit issue with the direction of the definition. But moving from this idea of telephone and building on what you said, it feels like, yeah, there is this stitching together of putting one's toe in inclusion and then continuing with all the mainstream practices of design and then calling it inclusive plus design. I guess we're doing inclusive design. And that, that could mean anything from doing research that you might not typically do or asking your neighbor who represents a pocket of diversity, like taking a week to, to go to a neighborhood or a country that you're not familiar with, and then coming back and doing the traditional design process and calling it inclusive. I see this kind of shallow distortion of what it it means. I see inclusive design in that kind of context becoming a genre, not just romance or a tragedy or movie. We know what's happening in, in the Hallmark movie. We know that you know love will prevail. We know the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I think that is the beginning of the danger point for any ideology, but inclusive design as an ideology when it becomes a, a, a genre that has particularities that characterize it and differentiate it from different design discourses. So but at the same time, I do see folks that are really in 
intentionally making moves to talk to folks who have not just talked to, but involve folks who are traditionally not involved in design, in the design process. I think OCAD is someone who's done that. Sasha Costanza-Chuck's idea of design justice addresses that. Having spoken to some folks at Adobe, yourself included, I know that the research that's happening kind of starts to move in this direction in many aspects. I believe you did the, is it XD that became a voice? Yeah, uh, voice control was an XD. Right. It's easy to be an armchair critic. How do you get to XD and voice control without doing something like inclusive design. It's just, I don't understand how that would happen. So I think that there are examples of this idea of inclusion happening in design. The two critiques that I have is inclusive designs and connection to the idea of equality. And then two, this kind of uh, broad brush approach, which I think is evident in the definition. The definition is we're committed to, first and foremost, it's highly committed to an identitarian logic that says that we're going to include this group and 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 this group. And, this group. and as long as we include them, the others, quote unquote, then design can be and will be by definition inclusive. It makes no kind of claim about what types of knowledges, what type of material politics are involved in inclusive design. It just says as long as we are cohesive with an identitarian politics and put everyone in the bag, so to speak, then the output will be quote unquote inclusive. And that to me is really convenient because it can be in any context. It can be practiced in a corporation like it can be uh, practiced in, I would say, political resistance group. So there's this abstraction that I think is really convenient and part of why it's so well adopted. Actually, if I can just talk about the, the first one first. Yeah. Actually, Yuda and I talked about this in her interview for the same podcast. And she actually talks about not wanting there to be a definition that's agreed upon for inclusive design in, in that the the surface area can't be covered by labels. It also leaves out the idea of the intersection between different identities, especially marginalized identities, and about what that idea of the solution is. And she wants to leave that open. And I think that the reason for the definition is only so that there are touch points that people can describe. And it's kind of like if you were in Rome and you were to describe the sun rising, you have to talk about Apollo carrying the chariot through the sky. You have to have the framing that people can understand for it in order to start teasing out what actually is beyond the phenomenology of it. So I think it's a difficult one because you want to expand the the lens of this beyond like for accessibility from screen readers to gross and fine motor disabilities to cognitive and emotional disabilities, just making sure that people are seeing really the full breadth of what needs to happen there. But ultimately, those labels do have to fall by the wayside in the the actual practice. Yeah. Yeah. Just to draw that out and through a recent experience, my biggest complication currently with inclusive design is that it doesn't have a politics for making decisions. And I appreciate the ambition to not have a definition, but respectfully, that means that anyone can define it and can be redefined, which I guess is part of, I think, this kind of agency and definition is part of the solution, but it also conveniently um, removes the bedrock of politics and oppression from the idea of inclusive design. What happens when you put people together in a room, any designer could tell you this, any researcher could tell you this, is that they don't disagree, that they don't agree all the time. Current 
conversations and participatory action research go beyond just putting people within a room, but also having a very deliberate commitment to anti-oppression work. So are we committed to anti-racism, anti-ableism? What yes. are we committed to? An example of to kind of uh, show in the concrete how this works. I'm currently doing a consulting project for an organization that's redesigning landscaping. And it's a university. And there are, on one side, the leadership of the university wants to think about this space as a community-driven space, a place where the community can come in. Then you interview the students and the students talk about how they've experienced threats, specifically women students have experienced threats of sexual violence by community members in the space. And then you also have community members saying that they've been left out of the space and wanting to be invited in, wanting places like commons, uh, like gallery spaces or yard spaces, etc. If we're just talking about all of the people involved, well, we have people involved, but we also have of specific and messy disagreements. <laughs> what rubric when we have the ambition to make an anti-racist space, to make a space with the politics of, let's say, a transformative justice, where we have friction and disagreements, if we politely excuse ourselves from the ethical questions of making decisions and having a commitment to a certain politics, then those decisions, I, I think, more times than not, are going to go in the way of the dominant powers, folks who have power, folks who have money, folks who are funding the projects, folks who speak up in the meetings, right? So if we don't have a rubric for our politics, I don't see it being any different from conventional design practices. Yeah. And I think that a part of this is just that a lot of this has to do with deciding who gets to participate and having worked in an environment that was consensus based that uh, I worked for the World Wide Web Consortium, all of the, the, the standards for the web have to get the consensus of hundreds of different organizations in order to be published. That's hard. It's just, it's a difficult thing to accomplish with people. Deciding who decides is itself a political act that also itself needs to be surveyed. There needs to be consent of the governor, as it were. And I think that one of the things that inclusive design has in this process is establishing people as full stakeholders that weren't considered that before or weren't considered until parts of the process had already been done to the extent that nothing really could be done to extend an existing artifact to them. They needed to be you know, thought of, brought in, given a, a, a platform and some like level of participation and power in the system that they didn't have before. So I think that it's a little mushy in there because if you came in with, here's a checklist, this is how you're going to establish this kind of organization that you then have an equality problem over here. You're thinking about the inclusivity of it at that political decision-making process that ordinarily Inclusive design, I think, integrates with once there is that unanimity, that agreement that we're going to work this way. Yeah, yeah, totally. If you were to get your family or your friend group or your whatever kind of social group you might belong to, maybe more than five people, and you were trying to decide where you were going to go for dinner, there's going to be disagreements, right? Absolutely. And there are ways that you navigate that thing. So it gets exponentially more 
complicated when you have class divides and, and other socioeconomic kind of divides. Specifically also, which is interesting to me, which gets back to the beginning, is the material divides. So we can say that we have a consensus-oriented space, but are we making decisions on Zoom where the people who speak up get to help and sway the decision. Before the pandemic, when I was in design spaces, we made decisions in the consensus-oriented space, so to speak. But those decisions were also made through post-it notes and Sharpies, a material interface that I had trouble interacting with fluently, quick enough to influence a decision. So if we're doing a brainstorming session, the issue of consensus and mediation, kind of material and social world, worlds, quote unquote, is super complex. And it gets into the idea of should we or shouldn't we standardize inclusive design? I would say no also, but I don't think it's an invitation to just say, make your own definition. (laughs) Yeah. And what it occurs to me is that over the course of my instruction at OCAD and over the course of my career, I've realized that inclusive design itself is just a tool. The question is, what are you using this tool for? And that really changes the the equation. When you start thinking about this as a career track or somebody that wants to be an inclusive designer, that constrains who it is that you're going to be able to work with because you can't be the one person who's doing justice work in a fundamentally unjust organization. Right? There's only so much that you can show someone without having the organizational buy-in for whatever kind of organization it is to do actual meaningful work to alter the processes and the artifacts that they create. That just means that we don't get to have a job anywhere we want. We have to actually evaluate what it is that we are doing. Because if we're only doing these superficial acts and calling it inclusive design then that's not what it is that we're getting into. And so I've described this as inclusive design is the what, then what's the why? I've asked this of other people that have gone through this program, what's the why? And for me, that's equity. The discussion is we have to understand that inequity is riven through everything that we've done up to this point. And if design as a discipline is it recognizing that and countering it, at least drawing a line as far as what it is that they consider to be inequities of the past and equity that they want to establish in the future. Then they could just keep learning Photoshop in school and, and being technicians. But there has to be someone in here that says we have to draw an ethical line for what it is that we are doing and not doing and who we're going to listen to who we're going to have as a part of our organization, who we're going to listen to externally. And that to me, I think is where that inclusive design methodology comes into practice, where you start talking about co-design, participatory action, action research, but also engaging with the HR department, the employee experience organization, everybody that is involved in creating spaces for people to participate equitably. And that I think is where the you know inclusive design touches kind of everything. So I, th- I think that there's a lot to to that. But I wanted to just get your thoughts on that or about the, the the concept of equity as people are thinking about it. How would you frame or reframe it to them if you were talking about what equity work entails? Yeah, that's it's. I was thinking maybe I'll get to equity through this, but as you were talking, and I was also thinking about my experience, maybe a recent experience in uh, consulting on making an accessible based 
website, one where we're specifically trying to push beyond universal design. I would say that the conditions of that project is we want to be creative and move beyond standards, which is a really great condition to be working on. And I, I think you're right. But what's the common thread in most of this? It's equity. And I would also add to that power. And I think as a thing in the world, inclusive design, at least what I've gathered from it, lacks a substantive kind of reckoning and critique of power. What is power? What are the forms of power that we're thinking about? I think we can't get to equity before we think about and start to at least formulate some very concrete ideas of what power is and how designers are or aren't in some ways involved in it. What inclusive design at its best creates is more equitable experiences when we're thinking about multimodal representation. So if we're translating images in text for screen readers, if we are thinking about how one tabs through a website, not just clicks through it, if we're maybe explaining the Shannon Finnegan does on um, Alt, Texas Poetry website, if we're doing this kind of uh, lighthearted, comedic, and really interesting description of the website, at its best, it can really redefine what design does and our experience of it. Inclusive design at its worst, for me, can be an excuse to bypass and not grapple with the power that's involved in the decision-making process. No matter what you're doing in terms of inclusion, access, there are always decisions that need to be made. In this art website, we are looking at archival documents, not just text, but drawings. And we're asking questions, which get translated? How do they get translated? Which don't get translated? How is that related to the money that we have? How is that related to the project timeline? How does that relate to our partners? We could say it's inclusive design, and sometimes it means we're dealing with power. But really, we make decisions and we do things and we don't do things. Every single time that we do something, we don't do something. Also, some things that we do present barriers and conflicts for other people. So power is in this. Instead of defining equity, I really hope for inclusive design to have a deeper engagement with the discussion of power. And again, this is specific to me. Just having been thinking about it, writing about it, participating in it. And so many times the question uh, that's posed to me is what ought we do? What should we do? You're the inclusive design person. You're the universal design person. You're the ADA person. Just tell me what I, I have to do. And in that question is please take the power or at least my reckoning that I actually have agency in this process away from me because I don't want to make the yeah. decision. So please take the power away from me, please. Or also, what is the minimum that I need to do to get you out of my hair? Right. Totally. Like, that's the, that that yeah. can be the actual subtext of a, right. a lot of these discussions. Right. When you look at companies that talk about your liability under ADA, there are layers of abstraction to take that away from the agency right. of the actual people that the ADA was meant to work for. And the same right. thing with civil rights legislation of, of all kinds, that there are decisions that need to be made that do not directly economically improve a given person's situation. And therefore, they want to just figure out, how can I negotiate down to something bite-sized that I can say that I'm being inclusive. And and that's something that I think uh, I mean, people need to be really wary of when they are bringing this into the conversation because they can really be led astray by people who really, truly want to help, but... <laughs> right. And then, and that's the but. You get the but, and then you realize that this is all just for show and that 
the the work that you're doing is only ever going to be like a tiny little subsection of a subsection of something, but everything else is full steam ahead. Don't care about any of the, the inclusivity aspects of what we're doing. What I fear is that inclusive design just becomes this thing mired with good intentions. Ivan Neely talks about, let's do away with good intentions to hell with good intentions. <laughs> we have to get the brass tacks. This is something that yeah. we've grappled with in design for a very long time. What's good is that we're having conversations about it. Why? Because we've had conversations about it. It's not necessarily new knowledge, but the, the challenge I think is to, to do something about what we've talked about <laughs> and what we've decided as a design, as a constituency, and not just pose the questions ahistorically. Right. This is a good point to take a break. So we will be right back with Joshua Halstead. This is the final episode of NX, or maybe the season of NX. If you've made it this far, I want to know what you think. My email is mattmay at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-M-A-Y at gmail. Should I keep this going? Who do you want to hear from? I'd really appreciate the feedback. Thanks. And we're back. And I wanted to ask a question that I usually ask earlier about this. So I'm going to backtrack and go back to your book. And I want to go to the subtitle of this, which is a feminist, inclusive, anti-racist, non-binary field guide for graphic designers. Lots of identities tied up in that discussion. Uh, we have to realize as inclusive designers that we can't speak for, that we don't necessarily represent individually every one identity that's been marginalized. So the discussion of inclusivity in the context of an inclusive designer's job is not to learn a perfect understanding of what everyone else's lived experience is. It is to bring that lived experience directly into the conversation. And one of the pieces that we need to understand about that is there are things that I can do as a self-advocate. My lived experience is the one that's being, that, that's being brought to the fore, but Simply being a self-advocate doesn't make you an inclusive designer. It makes you a participant with a specific vested interest in this that then you could use your power to exclude other people. And so there's this other aspect of collaboration or allyship or whatever you want to call it that you understand and have collegial relationships with people from other identities and are helping to bring them into that conversation rather than trying to speak for them. Even within the disability community, that idea of being an advocate comes with limitations of what matters to me and my lived experience versus someone who's deaf, someone who's hard of hearing, you name it. How do you find your limits and how do you make sure that you're not talking over someone when you're ostensibly there to expose people to that experience? Yeah. To start, something that is sometimes named, sometimes not, in this idea of inclusive design is this feminist politic, which actually started maybe before this, but specifically legibly in Marxist politics of labor, this idea of situated knowledge, right? Marx says workers have a unique view of capitalism in such a way that they can make a difference within it and overthrow it in Marx's idea. But specifically, they know capitalism different from the rulers of the masters, quote unquote, the bourgeois. This kind of feminist concept of a situated knowledge is specifically saying that women, again, generally have a specific relationship with history or his hyphen story, where right? the world is created through kind of the domination and for the domination of, of you know, men. 
right? This idea of situated knowledge that that based on our you know position in society, we uniquely know society intimately, and there are things that we get to know specific. So in in this kind of idea of design, you know, folks with disability, it's not just that we. Um, are committed to making things that work for them, but the inclusion of disabled people in the design process is assuming this idea of situated knowledge, that different disabilities manifest not just physically, but epistemically, right? They manifest in such a way that they give our participants a unique experience and knowledge of the world, of design, that is accessible to them, but importantly is inaccessible to people that don't have that that certain lived experience, a certain kind of social projection or, or whatever. So I think that's important because it's saying that the politics that I at least have, have come into with inclusive design is drawing on that, saying that everyone has a kind of a situated, a specific, but not universal, a partial knowledge of what's happening. So how do we grapple with this idea of advocacy? One, I think, is understanding that you have a, a perspective um, that is unique to you, that is important, right? It's also mediated socially and materially, but we don't have to get into that. Just from the point of view, your input is unique to you and important and says something about the things that you come into contact with. Design is, is one of them. At the same time, there's not a universal sp- in in the kind of universe, in, in the in, in inclusive design conception of knowledge, right? We're not saying that there is a universal knowledge, that there's an essential knowledge. We're saying specifically there's situated and partial knowledges. Therefore, the equation of equity means that we include a collective, but specifically a collective of individuals and individual partial mosaic type ways of stitching together a conception of the world, the problems that we're solving as designers, etc. So what is the job of the inclusive designer? It moves from the translator to the facilitator. Right. I'm collectivizing and synthesizing all of this and creating my own worldview, though that happens a lot more so. We're facilitating and elevating perspectives that are lost or, or devalued or repressed or et cetera. Important to note, I think, is understanding that this facilitation is not liberation. The problem that we get into there is a designer dropping into that community and then assuming that folks haven't or can't facilitate themselves. So I think, again, like here we have a, an issue of kind of understanding and, and thinking about facilitation. It's actually a critique that was launched against Sasha Costanza-Chak in an introduction of design justice. It was kind of, oh, designer as facilitator, as likened with justice. We want to be careful about facilitation, but how do we advocate for others? I think you can always do your own learning, but also know that your learning and your interpretation of what's happening is through the lens of your lived experience. So we have to get to this kind of facilitated way of thinking about design. And that's why I'm so concerned with decisions, because in this politics, we're going to make decisions. Inclusive design is not a politics of uh, synthesis. Right. We're not saying that there's a universal, though in practice, we make reports that synthesize different opinions. And it's usually the activity of one, two, three people, maybe. But yeah. And I describe that as it's stochastic learning, right? You're right. gathering random data points. Sure. And one of the issues in inclusive design is to make sure that we are not representing that as the totality of the scene. It's really just to point out in a lot of cases, especially early on as you're introducing this to people how deep the rabbit hole goes, how wide the span of lived experiences is, because we're so focused on that 
center of the bell curve, top of the long tail audience. That is what we are supposed to work for. Get the low hanging fruit, right? That whole, like all of that language about excluding people except the ones that are the most profitable. And so I think a lot of what happens in inclusive design is you start out and you have so little data from the the conversation that you are having with people that synthesizing it with the conventional wisdom of years of, of products development is dissonant that somebody is now saying I'm left out of this. And it almost requires that discussion of power to come into the conversation because you need to establish that this is something that we continue to find out more information about. And we get it from the people who have the most information, which is the group of people that have not participated in this work at all up to that point. And that's the difference, the inclusive design versus universal design idea of one size fits all versus one size fits one, that we are gathering information about one specific lived experience, perhaps even just within the domain of the thing that we are, that we're trying to create. Then we can come back to this discussion of power here, because I think that designers need to understand how to conduct research, not that they necessarily need to go and get their PhD in research, but that they need to understand what it is that they're getting when they have a dialogue with users. And there's this idea of design thinking, which I, I think I've trashed in every one of these episodes so far, but that the designer is the center of the universe here, that they are the one that is the interpreter, the one that has the the power in the situation. And one of the areas that inclusive design actually really gets deeply into the, the, the power dynamic is in how participation occurs as the researcher, as the facilitator of this, how far afield do your participants go? Do they completely redesign your product? There are ways that you can give almost all of your power to people that are that are participating in this. And we can get into a much more community-based solution to, to something that, that includes not just how they participate and we just give them all Starbucks gift cards, but how they profit, how they gain actual material equity in the work that's produced. I think that's another area that inclusive design doesn't provide a solution to, but it at least gives a means to start charting out that direction of how do we make sure that everybody is getting more out of this than they're putting in. Yeah, completely. It's I agree with you that the clarion call is not to have all designers get a PhD in, in research. I do think that basic research, fundamental research principles, ethical principles are necessary just because we are doing human subject research. As a teacher, far into my students' career, I am both excited and frightened when I'm the first one to introduce the Belmont Report to them. And knowing that we don't have IRBs in corporations, we have um, different metrics, right? Research methodology is, um, at least in undergraduate education, something that is not an emphasis. And I think that needs to be radically transformed. Right now, we're saying we need to shift from where we are now in designer as the the center of the world, a la design thinking to this kind of justice oriented designer as facilitator, as researcher, as methodologist idea. But there's a really nice pointed 
claim that can elevate people professionally, academically, even by saying it, put them in a genre of thinkers, like this idea of justice as a brand. The methodologies aren't, aren't there, at least more, more widespread supporting the claim, supporting the call. So I do think that the fundamental principles of human subject research, how to can, you know, conduct an ethical interview, what questions should you ask? What might be problematic? What is it? What is the you know, Tuskegee study? What can inclusive designers learn from that? If we're saying that designers are moving from this idea of our material skillfulness and we're pitting the future of design aggressively so in methodology, in research, we need to be in conversation with researchers, <laughs> frankly. That's one like, thing that I've learned over the last few years, definitely, that researchers have a significant role in this. The ethics part of it is something that is strong with researchers. And actually, because I'm going to school in Canada, the Canadians have the, the tri-council policy statement, which is a research ethics guidebook that whether it design researchers or medical researchers, anybody that's in the field of researching humans need to understand the, the consequences of their actions in relation to, to researching any given population. That's the thing that if I were to describe to people, this is what designers should do. But there's always that discussion. This is what a designer is. This is what a designer does. I think that the discussion of the responsibilities to people needs to take the front seat, not that the designer needs to master this kind of artwork, this art form, this kind of technology how to manage an organization and how to work with engineers, that all should take a back seat to how does your work impact humanity writ large? And how does your work situated where you are impact the, the lived experiences and the human rights of other people? Completely. Going back to this idea of embodied learning, like why was that so important to me as a touchstone in a book like Extra Bold or on a forum like AIGA? It's because it does what I think uh, a very necessary first step into this designer as researcher paradigm, which is it situates the designer, right? It situates them in their own lived experience. It creates a way in which you know, through their body and a reflection that they can understand how design has impacted their humanity <laughs> personally, right? How their interpretation of that affects the design that they have done historically, that they want to do. It creates this kind of situated conversation with their immediate environment, no matter where they are. It does what I think most of these kind of liberatory or revolutionary or participatory methods are asking first and foremost is to situate yourself, right? We situate ourselves in terms of our identities or categories or whatever. That's another conversation. I think it's useful in the sense of getting back to this idea of situated knowledge, which is part of the politics of inclusive design, whether it's stated or not. But the first step is making research accessible. We have to politicize our experiences, specifically with design, what works, what doesn't work, what's happening with your body, how is it involved in design, how has it been shaped by design? These are questions that need to be asked. It just connects to everything, connects to Buddhism for me because I have studied Buddhism. <laughs> but the, the idea of it's not a universal truth if you can't observe it yourself, you only have one perspective on all of this. And when we try to genericize anything else, we lose that. 
we have to understand our positionality with respect to other people in order for us to be designers. Because if we're not, then we're just designing for ourselves. Totally. To connect that to a lecture that I, I just did uh, a couple of weeks ago in class on Kant's What is Enlightenment with my students. And why I did that is not to, to put a stake in the ground on what enlightenment is, quote unquote, but because what is not enlightenment to Kant is people creating a dependent relationship on prescriptions for life as a substitute of, of reasoning. Right. So he says there's this kind of issue with people exporting their critical reasoning or thinking solely to books. Right. So if there's a problem to be solved, I need to read a book and then the book will tell me what to do and then I know what to do. There's a problem yep. with people exteriorizing their morality to moral teachers. There's a problem with people exporting personal well-being to to him, doctors, I would just say to Instagram today. There's a, there's a problem with us doing these things. And I see a similar thing happening writ large in design, and this is you know inclusive design in, in its danger zone, when we export our kind of moral reasoning or our critical thinking to a framework. Is oh inclusive design means that I'm a good designer. And then just like, pick whatever flavor of inclusive design that you want. And it lacks that reflexivity of lived experience like you're talking about. I think that one of the problems of, de of defining this is that it's inexpressible. Anytime that you take this and try to serialize it into a number of words, you're going to leave people out of this. And so depending just on the framing for the entire worldview is folly, right? We have to get our foot in the door so that we can bring out all of the diversity that we're actually talking about in that conversation. So I think that ends up being one of the big challenges. How do you actually get that information into people's heads and allow them to be troubled by it? There's a lot of troubling stuff that you're going to find out that challenges the way that you have conducted design in, in the past. And it, it's really just a way to get started down that road. I wanted to move to what I call wishes, wants, hopes, and dreams. What are the things that you want the listeners of this podcast or practitioners of design to know? What do you wish for the design as a field? Who do you think is doing good work? What do you see in the future? It's funny that you asked this because I've just, I've been reflecting. Of course, I always going to reflect on this big question, but I, but I feel like I actually have a nice play on design faux pas. And I, and I think what I'm really hoping for inclusive design in general to do is to do design for design's sake. I feel like this often, that was like the worst of the worst critiques that I could get in undergraduate education. Oh, you're just doing design for design's sake. You're just doing pretty typography, the trendy yeah. colors. You're just doing ugh, like this delicious design that no one gives a crap about. And, and that's valid, uh, a power that I specifically, and I think that everyone that you talk to, I, I know that they're going to have their own trajectory and vision for inclusive design. What I think is really exciting for me specifically in conversation of others who've helped me think about this is inclusive design's power or disability-oriented design, or maybe something, the critical access studies, if you're talking to uh, Amy Hamry, is the ability that inclusive design has to do design for design's sake in such a way that inclusive design can reopen closed questions that design has. One of those closed discussions is the, the conversation of aesthetics. Another closed question is the question of the purpose or the process of design. What I mean by aesthetics is what are the dominant aesthetic forms that mediate the practice of design. A poster means that we're putting a big image on a piece of paper or a homepage means that it's going to be 
a website. This kind of different way of access making where you're interpreting the image with text or you're creating an altogether new digital experience. This reopens the question of form, which I think reopens the question of participation and creates a critical praxis within design in general and moving between this critique and praxis, which I think is interesting. The, the question of design itself is what's the purpose of design? One of the most elegant ways I've seen this questioned was through design pedagogy, through a class that Liz Jackson and Alex Hoggard taught, I believe, last year at SVA, where the students were graded or assessed. I don't know the, the, the particularities of how they were valued. At knowing both of them, I'm sure there was this really nice way of doing it that would be counter-hegemonic. But what I loved is that the final assessment was not the output, of design, but students were measured in some way, shape, or form based on their capacity to change directions and to have an unfinished piece of design. So much of the time, this kind of urgency of, oh, we have to include every single person right now is because the design question is being closed in six months. We are creating a product and it's going to hit the market and then the question is going to be closed. So why is everyone in a frenzy to get everyone involved right now? Why do people get left out? Is because we have a closed question in six months and all of the politics involved means that people are going to be left out and and we're punting to this closed form of design as outcome, design as science, design as design thinking, right? Inclusive design can reopen that question in design, this idea of the closed question, access as critique, access as question, access as open-ended making where things can be made and remade and questioned and people can be involved. If we're really talking about inclusivity, if we're really talking about participation or transformation or liberation or justice or equity, the big things that we seek to do, I think inclusive design at its best can be designed for design's sake as an inversion where we're questioning what's been closed over Decades. Last question for you. Who do you think is doing good work? Who do you think people should be paying attention to here? Oh, yeah. So many people. I would say, and this is when I'll tell, I'll just say people who I've been particularly moved by recently. Sarah Hendren and Sarah Hendren's work in her book, but just as an educator also, just as a person who's putting out content often. Kevin Gottkin, again, someone who's putting out content often, thinking about many things, but media as one. Uh, Amy Hamrai and the Critical Design Lab, transparently I'm part of the Design Lab, so that's a biased thing. Liz Jackson, Alex Hoggard, Alice Wong. Most uh, people know Alice as this like powerhouse influencer and that's true but i remember my first conversation with alice talking about advocacy alice as a human i think is really important after i'm done talking about the the ills of the world that i wanted to to talk to alice about alice asked me what tv show i was watching and brought that in intentionally in in a fairly short meeting why that's important to me is because we're not going to complete it we're not going to complete the work. Like there is no work to complete, in my opinion. It's ongoing development. Move back to the idea of dialectics, right? Not that I'm you know, beholden to a Hegelian sense of history, but I think that to say that we're going to make an inclusive world in 100 years is a little bit pompous, which means that right. the work is not going to stop and good work means that there's going to be more work, at least in my experience. If we can't ask about the TV shows that we're watching, if we can't have time to commune 
together and introduce pleasure into the design process and have time to take a break and then re-ask the questions. We can get lost in the daunting ask of inclusive design and universal design in the urgency of liberation rather than the praxis of liberation as something that's ongoing. So you know, the folks that I am inspired by, and I could just sit here and list name after name, like most of the people you're talking to, but they are the people who bring their humanity into into the work, whether that work be market-based or community-based or academic. They are the people who are collaborators and allies and mentors and don't blur or don't stay within one category, but blur all the categories that our partners inspire me. And the people I talked about, I see as partners, whether we're currently talking to each other or we've talked to each other along the way. Absolutely. So that's a great place to end it. So Joshua Halstead, thank you so much for uh, participating in this project and had a fantastic time, as I always do, talking with you and (laughs) look forward to maybe doing this in person someday. Yeah, totally. Thank you, Matt. All All right. Thanks. That's our show. Show notes and transcripts for all NX episodes are available at nx.show. That's I-N-E-X dot show. All episodes are released under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Thanks for listening.